Have you ever noticed that people like to have their place? My guess is that when you have a meal in your home, you probably sit at the same chair at the kitchen table every single meal because we like to have our place. Or perhaps you have a favorite restaurant you like to have breakfast at and you like to go to the same table every time. Or you like to sit in the same place in the stands when you go to the high school ball game. Or you like to sit in a certain part of the theater. Some of you have been sitting in the exact same spot in this auditorium for literally decades. I mean, I literally can tell whether or not you are sick or have been missing church for a while simply by looking to one spot. Because if you're here, you will be in that one spot. Because we like to have our place. My dad was big on places, particularly on the easy chair in front of our TV. And dad made it clear that was his place, or he liked to say, that's my chair. And if you ever got in dad's chair, it doesn't matter if you were there first or if you had been watching something, it really didn't matter. He would say, get out of my chair, boy. And that was an understanding that frustrated me more than once. I remember once I brought a friend home from ACU. At this time, I'm in college. We're two 20-year-old young men sitting in the living room, and my friend was in my dad's recliner. My dad came in from work. I introduced my father to my friend who was home for the weekend. Nice to meet you. And then he looked at me and said, tell him to get out of my chair. <laughs> I said one time to him, I said more than one time to him, Dad, why can't I ever sit in that chair? And his exact words always were, when you have your own home, you can have your own chair. <laughs> well, one day I had my own home. And Jamie and I, we didn't have a recliner. Our first home after we married, we literally got some used furniture from a barn and we put it in our little dinky living room. And there wasn't a recliner, but there was one spot on the couch that was directly in front of the TV. If you were going to watch TV, that was the spot to sit in. That was my spot. And my father and mother came to visit and I just stood up in the living room the whole evening waiting for him to sit in that spot. So that I could say, Dad, this is my house, and that is my spot. And I did. And he said, go to your room. And, <laughs> and I did. That's what really bugs me. We like to have our place. And it can be very upsetting to be displaced. And this is one of the reasons why the journey of faith can be so challenging. Because God always has us moving. And I think it's so we won't put our pride in the wrong places. Before we get to our text now, which is Genesis chapter 12, I want you to look with me at the Hebrew writer's commentary on our text. In chapter 11, we read, starting in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder 
is God. I love how that same verse reads from the message. It says, by an act of faith, Abraham said yes to God's call to travel. One does not sit by faith. You walk by faith. And throughout the Bible, we are to understand that the pleasing life is the pilgriming life. And so with that in mind tonight, I want to teach you how to improve your pilgriming. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, this brief little text we read, I think, is one of the most important in Scripture for this reason. It establishes a basis for understanding how God chooses to relate to all men through all time. And it is by two words. Promise and faith. Now, promise is God's power and His will to create a new future out of what has been a barren past. That's promise. Now, faith is our capacity to embrace that announced future with so much passion that we're willing to let go of anything that is hindering our pursuit of this future that God has announced. And I'm going to argue that all through the Bible, this is how God relates to men. And that's why in your New Testament, when it wants to talk about how to get saved, it never goes to the book of Acts. It always goes to Abraham. Because God relates to men by promise and faith. Promise, God says, I am going to create a new future out of your barren past. Faith, I believe you so much, I am going to go hard after that future. And I'm going to let go of anything tying down my pursuit of it. So God says, promise Here's what I will do. Here is the future, Abraham, I will create for you. I will show you a land. Now notice, that means God's going to go with him. I will make you, though you are a childless man and you are reproductively dead and so is your wife, I will make you a great nation. Further, I will bless you And I will see to it that those that bless you get blessed and those that curse you get cursed. And finally, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you because I've already announced back in the garden that I'm going to send a deliverer and it's going to be through your line that that deliverer comes. Now, Abraham, this is the promise. This is the future I am announcing. I will. That's promise. But then there's I want. That's faith. 
I want you to so embrace and pursue this promise that you will relinquish anything I ask for. I want you to relinquish your attachment to your country. I want you to leave it. I want you to relinquish your attachment to your culture. You know, it's one thing to leave your country, but you can leave your country and still go to a culture that's like your country. I want you to give up your country, and then more intense, I want you to give up your culture, and then most intense, I want you to give up your kin. God is asking for the surrender of all of Abram's past securities. And he's bidding to come take a hike. Let go of all that stuff, Abraham. When you go hiking, you don't carry a lot of stuff with you. Let it go. Put on your backpack. Let's go for a walk. Where are we going? I'll tell you when we get there. This is how God calls everyone. Please note in your Gospels, despite the popular expression in American evangelicalism that we need to accept Jesus. Jesus never asked anybody to accept Him. He asked people to follow Him. And you cannot follow God and stay where you are. I know that sounds obvious, but the fact of the matter is a lot of people want to try to do that. Stay where they are while embracing the promise. It doesn't work that way. It's never God's will that you stay still. His calling is never going to leave you where He finds you. The heirs of Abraham understand we are part of a movement. And that pilgriming is not the exception for us. It is the norm. And that is why throughout the Scripture... We, Abraham's heirs, are described with words like exiles, strangers, aliens, pilgrims. A pilgrim is not a drifter. Because a drifter wanders around with no particular destination in mind. A pilgrim, on the other hand, is traveling through a foreign land with intention to someday arrive at that place called home where his pride and his affection are set. And the model for everyone of faith to follow is Abraham. Over and over the Bible says, do it like Abraham. He's our model. However, all models have flaws. Remember, it's upsetting to be displaced, particularly when you're 75 years old. See, Isn't it true that when we get to a certain age, we start saying things like, I'm ready to settle down? Usually when you're 75, you're thinking of settling. You're not thinking of hiking. And so we're not surprised to read. Look at the last verse of chapter 11. It says that Terah took his son Abram. 
his grandson Lot, son of Herod, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Something happened to the vision in Haran. Something that trumped the call of God. And I think the clue is in the phrase, Terah took his son Abram. There is no record of God ever calling Terah. Or for that matter, there's no record of a God ever calling Lot. In other words, Abram left his homeland. But he didn't leave his house. And Terah is going along with Abram on this journey. And you've got to understand that Ur is where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers comes together. It's a very fertile place. And Haran is up what they call the Fertile Crescent, up those rivers. And so for the first part of this journey, they're just going up by the river, and it's easy traveling. There's plenty of water. There's good grazing for the flocks. But then you get to Haran, and after Haran, there's nothing but desert. On top of that, you get to Haran and you look into the temple and you look and see that they're worshiping the same exact gods you worship down in Ur. And Terah, the idolater, says to himself after traveling all the way up the river, you know what? I've gone far enough. I like it here. There's water. There's grass. I know the gods. All I see out there is sand. We have gone far enough, boys. I'm settling down. I'm about to ask you a real heavy question. Do you know any believers who left Ur, but they never got to Canaan? Now ponder that for a while. The church is filled with believers. who became religious but never got fully converted. And here's the problem with that. If I say to my son, Matthew, the trash can in the kitchen is overflowing. Go take the trash out and put it on the street. And Matthew goes into the kitchen and he grabs the bag and he pulls it up and he ties it up and he walks to the front door and puts it down and goes back and sits in front of the TV. Has he obeyed me? Matthew, I told you to put the trash out on the street so it can be picked up in the morning. Well, Dad, it's not in the kitchen anymore. I moved it to the door. What's the problem? Would I consider that obedience. Every parent here knows the answer to that question. That partial obedience is disobedience. And the church is filled with people who left her, but they never got to Canaan.
because it got too hard. And sometimes what God has to do to rekindle our faith is take away Tira. And so God took Tira out of the picture. And his death renewed Abram's vision. And he got the tents out of storage. Verse 4 says, So Abram left as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. Now, realize the author, Moses, knows that Abram is going to Canaan. Abram doesn't know that. See, God had been very specific about the departure. But he had been pretty generic about the destination. And so Abraham only knew to obey the word go until he heard the word stop. So he's just going. The Hebrew writer says he didn't know where he was going. He was just going. And he crosses over into this land known as Canaan. And he noticed some potentially difficult neighbors. The Bible says in verse 6, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites... We're in the land. That may mean little to you, but it meant a lot to the first readers. The Canaanites were known as some of the most wicked and deplorable people that ever walked the face of the earth. People that threw babies into fires as worship of gods. People who were some of the most morally depraved people that have ever lived. Archaeologists have found many artifacts created by the Canaanites that were so grotesquely perverse, I don't even want to describe them in this context. They were truly a wicked people. Not the kind of people you want for neighbors. They hurt the property value, if you know what I mean. So Abraham's going through this land. Noticing this wicked people, waiting for God to say something, and he got some directions. First half of verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So the bad news is that the Canaanites are in the land. The good news is that God was there too. So now the big question is, how's this old man going to react? After all these miles, after all he has relinquished, and this is where you want me to stop? In this land? The land of the Canaanites? What's he going to do? Well, the rest of the verse tells you. So he built an altar there. To the Lord who had appeared to him. 
That was Abram's way of claiming a promise that had no logical chance of fulfillment. There is no rational possibility that this pilgrim shepherd is ever going to own this land. Not the land of the Canaanites. But that's what God said. That was, I will. And Abram built an altar. That was I want. He wasn't going to be afraid of who was in the land. Because he knew the landowner. In fact, he decided to take a tour. It says, verse 8, From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And called on the name of the Lord. Now, folks, this is going to be the pattern of his life. He's going to pitch a tent. He's going to build an altar. Then he's going to load up. He's going to move on down the road. He's going to pitch a tent. And he's going to build an altar. Then he's going to load up. He's going to move on down the road. He's going to pitch a tent. And he's going to build an altar. You know what he's doing? He's claiming the land. If he was singing a song, it would have gone something like this. This land ain't your land. This land is my land. This land belongs to God and me. And think of how strange his behavior must have seemed to the locals. I mean, he doesn't build a house. He doesn't build a barn. He doesn't build a windmill. All he ever leaves behind is a pile of rocks. If it wasn't for a pile of rocks, you'd never know he'd been in the land. But everywhere he goes, he leaves a pile of rocks. But did you notice it never says he built an altar to God in Herod. Altars are for people who are taking a hike with God. And tents are for people who have no pride in this world. And this little text is going to be held up all through the Bible as the model for how God wants us to relate to Him. And so it seems to me pretty important that we improve our pilgriming. I'm going to give you two hints how to do that. Here's number one. Learn to be content in a tent. Because you cannot be weighed down by a lot of stuff and become a good hiker. Earlier we sang that old hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Do you remember the line, Land me safe on Canaan's side? Years ago there was an old hymnal that contained that song and it had a misprint. And the actual words were, land my safe on Canaan's side. And that is the problem with most of us when it comes to pilgriming. We want to take our safe with us. We want to take our past securities with us. Now, if in the middle of the night you wake up to the smell of smoke and a fire alarm 
and you feel the heat, what are you going to do? You're going to run out of the house. Are you going to stop in the hall and straighten a picture that's a little bit off-center? Why would you straighten a picture in a burning house? The Bible asks us that question from start to finish. Why are you the heirs of Abraham spending so much time on the furnishings of a house about to burn? This is how the world lives. We are called to live as a minority report. Our lives are supposed to be rebuking the world. This world that has become settlers. This world that has ordered their lives against the promise. We are a minority report. We don't crave the objects of their pride. And in so doing, we seem to them to be strange. An alien. The great classic John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress has a scene, I'm sure many of you have read, where the pilgrims travel to this place called Vanity Fair. It was Bunyan's symbol for the allurements of the world. And here's what he writes. The pilgrims were clothed with such kind of raiment as was diverse from the raiment of any that traded in that fair. The people, therefore, of the fair made a great gazing upon them. Some said they were fools. Some said they were bedlams. And some said they are outlandish men. Few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan. But they that kept the fair were the men of this world. So that from one end of the fair to the other, they seemed barbarians each to the other. But that which did not a little amuse the merchandisers was that these pilgrims set very light by all their wares. They cared not so much as to look upon them, and if they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and look upward, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. A pilgrim can't be attached to anything on a permanent basis except God. And to live that way is kind of unworldly. But it can be learned. You know that, don't you? Paul said twice in the chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, I have learned to be content. We can learn to simplify life. We can learn to be less enamored By what hangs on the wall or is sold in the mall. We can learn to be more content in a tent. And we must if we're going to have the faith of Father Abraham. We must learn to be content. In a tent. By the way, a side note, you will worry a whole lot less. And then number two, we must yearn to be altered at the altar. 
There's a great old story of the old man that sat outside the gate of Sodom, and every day he would scream and shout against the wickedness of the city. And finally somebody said, old man, why do you scream and shout? You are never going to change this city. And he said, yes, but if I scream and shout, I will keep the city from changing me. See, we don't like to feel out of place. When your kids who are starting school here this week or next go to school, they don't like to feel out of place. And so the temptation is to settle. You've heard me say before, the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ today is not persecution. Show me in 2,000 years of church history where persecution eradicated the church. Almost always the church grew under persecution. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ has never been persecution. It has always been accommodation. To settle into a life that looks so much like the world, there's nothing worth persecuting. And that is why we need regular altar time. That's why daily worship is important. That's why we get those Bibles out and we read them and not just when we're at church. That's why we set aside deliberately times to pray and talk to God. That's why every week we get together and we take some bread and we take some wine. Because we need some altar time. Lest we be seduced. By the world to settle. And when we do business with God at our altars, He exposes the herons and the tiras in our lives and He asks for them to be relinquished. And the abandonment of all of this false pride rekindles our affection. For our true treasure. When George Schultz was Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, he had this large globe in his office, and he would always meet with a prospective ambassador of our country, and he would say, Go over to that globe and show me where your country is, because it would be an embarrassment. If you were the ambassador to Zambia or Belize or Kazakhstan and you couldn't find your country on the globe. His good friend, Mike Mansfield, had been appointed ambassador to Japan. He said, Mike, go over in the globe and show me your country. He said, Mike spun the globe, stopped it, and deliberately pointed to the United States and said, This is my country. And Schultz was so moved, he said, from that day forward... He said to every potential ambassador, don't you ever forget, you represent your country wherever you go. But the United States is your country. We are pilgrims, not drifters, pilgrims. This is not our country. We are looking for a better one. And we need to be vigilant lest something hinder our pilgrimage.
I'd like you to sing that chorus with me one more time. Let's update it. Let's sing, He's Leading Me. He's leading me, He's leading me by His own hand. He's leading me, His grateful Father I would be for by His hand He's leading me. Ryan, would y'all just tell that a second? Please, just hum that chorus a second. Bow your heads. Just take a moment, recommit to the promise. And just ask yourself, or ask God to show you, is there something weighing you down tonight that perhaps you need to release so that you can hike a little better? Oh, God, I pray that you would fill our hearts tonight with a fresh vision of the promise. May we be so captured by it. May we be so delighted by it. May we be so hungry for it that there's nothing this world peddles that is worth pursuing it with all our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be standing, please. If you would like to give your life to Jesus Christ tonight, would you come forward while we sing one more song about traveling?